Hello, and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Hello, Joe. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? I'm great, because we just spoke to Ian Birchnell. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Uh, Ian Birchnell is, of course, the manager of Ustersons FK in the uh, Alsvenskan, is it? The top Swedish league? (laughs) Alsvenskan? Yeah, I just call it the Swedish top division. Do you know what I did uh, during this episode, Alex, by accident? I don't know. I said Swedish. I, oh, actually, I was I, I was going to message you and say <laughs> yeah. you do realize, yeah. But I, then it's because I, I was trying. It's because I was trying to say uh, Alsvenskan. I was yeah. like, I was in my mind. I was getting ready to say it, uh, and then I just bailed. I panicked and bailed out of it. But instead, I said Swedish. It's like when Which, Joey uh, Barton did that uh, press conference at Marseille. And oh, started. <laughs> so embarrassing. Anyway, look out for that. It's towards the end of the podcast. I say Swedish. Ian Birchnell is, of course, a gentleman and doesn't pull me up on it. So thanks, Ian. Um, anyway, what did we talk to Ian about? We talked to Ian about loads of things. Uh, his coaching philosophy, his day-to-day. Uh, we talked to him about man management, um, all of the sort of, uh, well, some of the interesting club culture things that Graham Potter brought in when he was there and how they're still going. I love the fact that they do uh, a musical production, although they did one last summer. That, mm. that As you know me well, Alex, that is literally, right you couldn't be closer yeah. up my street than that. <laughs> Oh, I yeah. loved it. Um, we also talked about the fact that uh, Ian is married, of course, and his partner has moved with him to you know a couple of different countries, and you know the the, the impact there, which was very interesting. Um, what what else do we talk about, Alex? Uh, coaching networks. Um, yes, yes. How he deals with all the disparate bits of information that you get as a coach, and how he processes all of that. His kind of personal. Um, way of uh like building his day and making sure that he has time to do what he needs to do but also work with all the other people who are part of his team it was a it was a really good insight into what it's like to be a a top level coach I thought so too. And quick shout out to David Priest, who is the goalkeeping coach for Ustersons, who we did have a question about, but we ran out of time. Uh, but it strikes me that maybe we should just ask David to come on and talk to us about what a goalkeeping coach actually does anyway. I think that's a very sound idea. Yeah, okay. Um, hey, listen, if you like us, then you should help us and enjoy yourself at the same time by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. There you will find some form of free trial to what is it called? The Athletic. Do you like The Athletic, Alex? I very much like The Athletic, Joe. Why do you, though? Um, because I can read about football and other sports. Yeah, in exceptionally well-written journalism. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, there's... Okay, this is a random one, but I last week, I think it was, I read Bill Shea, who's one of the, the US writers, um who I really, really like and does lots of stuff that's not normal kind of sports stuff. And it was about the rise and fall and rise again of the market in baseball trading cards. Wow. Which is about as niche as it gets, but it's a fascinating article. Way to sell the athletic, Alex. That's definitely, <laughs> everyone's going to be running and jumping on, you know, from our heavy yeah, football right. fan base. No, I can't, I the whole the point is if you're listening two things one if you support a premier league team or uh, you know one of five in the championship or one of two in scotland 
uh, then you should you should try the free trial because there is a, there are journalists that write specifically for you and for your club in an in-depth way that you just don't get outside of local newspapers and uh, of course you don't get it in the national press particularly if you're a smaller club so if you're a fan of a team like Norwich for example you should at least check it out because I'm pretty sure that the quality of writing that you're going to be able to read there and the insight and the access that you're going to get with The Athletic is greater than it is anywhere else so that's the first thing the second thing is if you like TIFO you should support us by signing up to a free trial because it helps us a lot. Uh, so thanks for that. And you can do that by going to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Anyway, without further ado, uh, we leave you in the very, very safe and warm hands of Ian Birchnell. Okay, uh, the first question that we ask uh, all the coaches that, uh, that join us on the podcast, Ian, is um, what, what's your day-to-day like? And uh, please do tell us the details that, that you think are boring, like, you know, what time do you wake up? What time do you arrive at work? These things are fascinating to us. Yeah, the, in terms of waking up for me, it's pretty much out of my hands. I've got three kids, one who's turning six tomorrow, actually, one four and one one and a half. So it's highly unlikely that my alarm ever wakes me up so it's normally one of them that gets me up normally around six o'clock in the morning so uh they they are my alarm clock so i I tend to get up with them um and then get myself ready to be fair that recently I've, i've been trying to get out and go for a quick run before uh before breakfast but it's um i can't say that i do that during the season that much i'm normally much busier but at the moment (laughs) in this uh corona situation i found myself with a little bit more time in the morning in the afternoon so i'm trying to utilize that um but uh yeah i I normally go into the club around 7 30 um into the stadium there i I like to have like an hour just sit and have a cup of coffee and, and like clear my mind and go through a few of the bits certainly around the day and the the training sessions and what we're going to be uh doing during the day and, and like organize myself a little bit and then the staff tend to come in any time between 8 and eight thirty. we we tend to sit down as a staff like eight thirty, cup of coffee and just run through the session availability of players any changes from what we did the day before um yeah and, and plan a little bit about each of our roles then we have all the players and the, the staff eat breakfast together then at nine o'clock. So we, we sit, eat a breakfast. Uh, that's that's a really good... I think it's something that, that uh, was brought in before I came, but it's quite... I think it's grown, especially when, when Uster Summer's in the Europa League. The breakfast has grown and grown and grown. It's become the most elaborate um, and uh, outrageous breakfast I think I've ever <laughs> had. And like so many players have got different things that the guys that are doing the breakfast want to cater for. And um, and I think like we've got players that have been at Chelsea and they're like, oh my God, this is the best breakfast we've ever had. So I don't know if Ostersund, we, we have, we fall short maybe on a lot of things around in football, but breakfast is the thing that we do the best. Um, <laughs> uh, then, then I normally, it's quite a good intro then just to like 9.30, we tend to have meetings with the players. So depending on what day of the week it is or what we've got on that day, but normally present the session and maybe some video clips and, things like that around 9.30. Um, and then we we tend to train 11 o'clock, um, eat lunch together. And then the afternoons are normally filled with re-watching the training back, planning the next session, meetings with players, um, yeah, video analyzing, preparing things for, uh, for upcoming games. So 
it's kind of like that, but every day can be a little bit different based on, uh, you know, which, which day of the week it is. You don't, you don't tend to work in days as a football coach. It's more like match day plus one or match day minus one, match day minus two. So you kind of live your life like that. So you lose track on what, what day of the week it actually is sometimes. Right, yeah. Hey, do you mind if I drill down into that a little bit? You said something near the beginning where you arrive an hour earlier um, than everyone else and sort of clear your mind. That's something I've heard, uh, I guess, leaders say before, um, which I think is quite a common thing. But and, and I know this might be a difficult question to answer. You may have answered it already, but what do you mean when you say clear your mind? Do, do you have particular exercises that you do to do that? or Because or, it's, it's something I hear quite a lot, but I'm never really sure what it means on a, on a personal basis. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's different for different people, but I, I like to I like to be well planned and I like to know that I have things, you know, I know that when the staff come and when the players come, they, they tend to come with a lot of questions and a lot of wonderings and 90% of those start to be directed towards yourself. And once the office is full and the players are in, you don't kind of stop, you know, you're talking, engaging with people. And I kind of like that first hour just to, have to myself where I'm kind of like preparing, okay, what do I need to do today? What sort of things do I, do I want to do? Um, you know, make sure I've got clarity on. And I, I think I've been more, uh, more into doing this, certainly since, I've, since we've had children, uh, my wife and I, and because it's so chaotic, like I finish work, get home, and it's chaos until the kids are in bed. Then you're like flat out. And then the next day you wake up and I'm like, I need an hour just to like reflect on <laughs> yesterday or what I'm going right. to do today before the mayhem of everybody coming in and questions and maybe press or journalists and things like that. So I think it's more just to have that time to yourself where you can go through your own process of perhaps it's, I, I like to relook at the training session and make sure I've got absolutely everything clear because once the staff come in and we start talking about it, it can go off sometimes in different tangents as well. The discussion around the the session or players and, so I, I like to have that time just to totally be be clear on on what I hope to do for that day. Pep Guardiola in in the the great series of books by Marty Pernero, um talks about going to his office and it's very kind of Spartan and spare and he sits there and and reflects and solves problems and so on. Is your office similarly free of distractions so that you can kind of just focus on? The problem in hand or is it full of like tactics boards and upcoming things <laughs> that are happening and you know pot plants and so on <laughs> no there's no pot plants and i would guess that uh Guardiola, i would assume Guardiola's office is slightly bigger than mine um <laughs> uh, but i i would say um it's fairly minimal there's not a lot in there there's a small meeting desk uh there's my own desk and uh, some chairs for people that come in a big screen to that I can watch games back on um, and a couple of tactics boards um, and like all, of course, all the players mapped out and systems. And then, but in the big main office we've got, we kind of have a lot more, you know, of the calendars and all of those kind of things. And I think I like to, often I keep the office door open because I like to hear what's going on in the office and like to engage with the staff and, and talk and discuss with them. But at the same time, some, sometimes you do just need to close the door and focus on your own job or focus on certain things that you want to think about. So I think it is good to have that space and, and probably uh, similar to that, not too much things going on there because uh, you, you need to have a bit of clarity and there's so many things going on in a football club all the time. It's good to have a bit of a, a quiet space where you can work totally focused. 
do you when you when you plan things ahead and, and you have your sort of bit of solitude do you tend to think about things do you write things down do you work in a, a particular way in terms of um, retaining information uh yeah i do i like it's and it's strange when things come to you you know it could just be a development of a training session or it could be an idea around maybe something that you want to address in the media or it could be something that yeah. you want to address with the staff um and it's strange when something you know i could be sit on a sitting on a plane but then i just use notes on my phone you know and i just write a reminder on my phone there or write notes in um do you ever find ones from months ago that you completely forgot? Yeah. You, do, you, do, you, do you know what? It's so funny you say that because I was actually clearing out some stuff on my phone and I was going through yeah, the notes yeah. and I actually found notes from uh, the last manager job that I had in uh, Viking over in Norway. And I was like going through and it was like notes of reminders of things to bring up in board meetings. And it was quite <laughs> funny to, to read them. And I was going, my God, yeah, I didn't get that. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. <laughs> so it was, but it, it is good to sometimes find some of those notes. And the same with tactics, you know, um, you, you have ideas around things that are going to be important. And I, I, I don't tend to have those. Some people talk about having them in the middle of the night and having to write them down so they can sleep. But I, I don't tend to, to, to have that but certainly you can something pops into your mind that I want to write it down before I forget about it <laughs> because that can happen a lot of um you know kind of workplace teams use systems like Trello or Google Calendar or whatever and you're obviously in a position where you're overseeing not just lots of disparate groups in terms of coaches and analysts and players but also information is presented to them in lots and lots of different ways so you might be getting spreadsheets in from your analysts and video in from your analysts and trying to disseminate that out how do you stay on top of all of these different types of information that are presented in different ways you know is there just like you've got a a notebook that everything goes into and you you pull it all into that or is it slightly more chaotic than that it's probably a bit more chaotic, I think. Uh, I wish it was as streamlined as that, but it's not. probably not. Um, but I think what, one thing that I've, I've probably learned over the past few years is to understand what parts you need to have total control over and what parts you need to have like trust in others to do. And like the, the physios that we've got on the medical team are fantastic. We've got like a Usterson's Dropbox that everything goes into, you know, uh, injury updates and... Uh, profiling of the players wellness scores everything goes into this dropbox um, and they're constantly updating it and it's that kind of stuff is there for me to use when i want it but you know i don't feel that i need to i feel like the medical team have got really good control i can have short briefs with them in the morning about individual players and get a summary from them but if i need more detail i know i can always go or, or refer back to that the analyst comes with a lot of information and i think a, a skill that you need to have is working out which bits are really important in that moment, which bits are, um, which bits you need for the upcoming game and which, which bits you don't want to focus on because like we can get a Y scout report, for example, after a game and it's like 40 pages of data. Um, and you've really got to work out which bits, which bits are, are important to you in that moment because you get fed with so much stuff. If you try to utilize it all, I, I think your brain might explode. So you need to work out which bits are important. So we have like, course you know head of recruitment has got his dropbox file which he's constantly updating with players and recruitment patterns and the analyst is putting things in there and session plans so kind of feeds into one thing but it's separate within that so i can kind of choose which bits i want to go in and and really look in detail at 
can I ask? I want to come on to talk about your uh, your coaching philosophy in a moment. But beforehand, it sort of struck me when I was, I was reading about you beforehand, Ian. Um, you ended up at Salzburg with uh, Brian Dean. You went along with Brian. Uh, obviously, Ustersons. Am I right in thinking that that um, you were there sort of partly on the basis of uh, Graham Potter's suggestion? Yeah, I, I mean, I've never actually asked Graham that. To be honest, um, I spoke I read to him that a somewhere. few weeks ago. Yeah, and I. I know that they would have asked Graham for a reference from me, and I know because I've known Graham for many years. I'm pretty sure Graham would have been a, a good reference for me. So, yeah. and I think that he he really built his identity into the team over a seven year period. Um, and I think when they wanted a new coach, they wanted one that wasn't gonna just rip it up and go, okay, now it's my way. One that right. was maybe thinking along similar sort of lines in terms of playing style, in terms of methodology, uh, in terms of leadership. So I think they didn't want wholesale changes. I mean, I came in it. I came into this job. I was thirty-five when I got the job, and Graham was thirty-five when he took over at Ustersund. That, of course, they're in different, very, very different. Like now, we're in the top league in Sweden. At the time, they're in the fourth tier, so it's a different challenge now. Um, but I think they saw perhaps me as a lot of similar characteristics, and I think Graham probably uh, endorsed that as well because he knew me. Um, and I think, of, uh, of course, I still went for a job interview and did all the formalities. But I, I certainly think Graham will have helped. Uh, will have helped in that process. Yeah. Can I ask then, off the back of that, um, how important is it? Do you think? Because this is a question that I don't hear asked very often, and that I don't think I've ever asked a coach before. Um, but it strikes me after you know re- reading reading about your sort of career path. Obviously, it's a huge part of it. Networking, <laughs> how imp- and I don't mean uh, that in a schmoozing no, kind no, of way, it's, but it's like how sh- important is it in uh, coaching? It's hugely important. It's hugely right. important because I, I I know really good coaches that are absolutely hopeless at uh, talking or discussing or or networking or finding their place. And I, I was really really poor at it. I think, um, and uh, I think actually Brian helped me a little bit with that because. I was I was at Bradford City in the academy there and uh, I was coaching John Hendry's son, uh, Luke Hendry, who's at Grimsby now. Um, and, and John knew Brian very well. And Brian was doing his coaching badges and John had said, oh, well, why don't you come down and have a look at Luke's group and Ian's coaching and you can get taught with Ian. Ian's done his badges and you can maybe you can help each other. And Brian came down and I could see he wasn't that... Um, connected with maybe coaching the kids he wanted to work with older older players and at the time I was the university leads coach so I um I invited him just to come and be around the university and he ended up coming in and working together with me at the university for a couple of years and I always had this uh feeling that when I was around uh top players or top coaches or professionals um that I, I kind of didn't quite belong at that table you know because I hadn't been a player. No one knew who I was. I hadn't proved anything in a coaching capacity, really. Um, and so I always felt uncomfortable in those situations. But actually, Brian was like, hey, you should be sat at these tables. You're a good coach. You can do this. And I think, I mean, he heard that from a, a guy with 20 years playing experience. And the fact that when I coached, he was like impressed or he enjoyed it and he was reflecting on things and experiences and coaches he'd worked with and maybe, oh, you're a bit similar to him or him. Um, and I think that made me think, right, well, maybe I do belong around in these environments and maybe I shouldn't be afraid to discuss my thoughts and opinions and and uh, network a little bit more. And I think from there, I did become a bit more comfortable and realise the value of it as well because 
you know, the more people you know and connect with and, you know, the, the football world is quite transient and changes and, and uh, you know, as you kind of find your path through football, I think the more people that you know, network with and work with, uh, obviously really helps you. Do you think that's become increasingly important as clubs look to build a philosophy and, and have continuity in that philosophy rather than just you know, uh, employing a series of head coaches who are good at coaching. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that a network like that is very important. I think that clubs, I, I've been at clubs where the head coach has changed or the manager has changed and the whole remit of the youth academy starts to change because they're thinking about football in a different way. And, you know, you, you get one coaching, maybe you get like an, an old experienced coach just to stabilise the club. And then after a period of time, maybe results aren't good. They want a change and they think, well, that's not work. So we'll do like the polar opposite and we'll get a young guy in. <clears throat> and when they get this young guy in, um, after a period of time, if he fails, they'll think, right, you know, we need a bit more experience or we need to do things different. So you kind of jump from that hasn't worked. We'll do the opposite. But then the entire structure of the club has to start to change along with it. And I think that can be really problematic. So finding a path for the club, I think, and an identity and what they, you know, a, a target for what they should be doing is really important as a start point. And then you can say, okay, what kind of characteristics from the coaches? Us, the Suns, were absolutely crystal clear with what characteristics were important to them. Um, so it was much easier then to maybe reach into that network and find a coach that, that fit. So when you then apply for a job there, are you are you going on the basis that you already know that they're buying into your overall philosophy and therefore they want to know how you're going to approach that? Or are you, are you also trying to sell, this is my philosophy and then I'm going to implement it in this kind of way? Do, do you think that's more of a thing that coaches are having to do nowadays? I think... I think it's important when you go for a job that you know or you've done your research on the kind of club and the identity of the club that it is and whether or not you're a good fit um, because that way, of course, you're not wasting anybody's time when you go. Um, I think it's important that you're totally honest when you go and talk to clubs about how you want to work because you can always tell them what they want to hear. But then if you do it your own way anyway, which is different, you can quickly come into some problems. So I think just to have that um, Frank chat at the start about how you work but I knew I, I knew how Ostersons were playing I knew how Graham was working I knew that it, it's not the same but it, but we have a lot of similar principles and a lot of similar values um, <clears throat> so I knew that when the club were looking for somebody new that I would go there it was really interesting because like over the course of like the six years that I've been in Norway I kind of put together my own like document about how I want to play style, uh, training methodology, value system, leadership, all of this sort of stuff. And um, and then I, I kind of, when I knew I was going to talk to Osterson, I put it all together in like, I don't know what it is, maybe 60 pages and and put it together specific for Osterson. And I brought it with me to the interview and I, I didn't even get it out of my bag because the chairman, <laughs> I think, had already done his research on me He'd already like looked into the way in which I worked. He kind of done everything really, <clears throat> so it was more a chat about look, what do you want? Where do you see yourself going? Um, you know, he, he said several times, football's very simple. We know how you work. You know how the club works. If it if we can come to an agreement, then we can sort it. So it, you know, I think 
in this case, the club had done a lot of research on me and they knew exactly what they wanted. But I think in, in a lot of circumstances, it's good to go in with your template of exactly how you want to work. So the club know, okay, this is exactly what we want or not. Given that you have no use for that document now, Ian, will you send it to us? Yes, I will. No, <laughs> yeah, I can do that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how interesting reading it is. Um, but, I'm sure it is. I yeah. bet it is. And do you know, what? I was going to ask you anyway because we use the word, word philosophy here. Um, I'm delighted to hear that you've got it in a kind of a, an Ian-shaped Bible. Um, yeah. What is your philosophy? Uh, Sixty pages, so we'll have to summarise. But what is your philosophy? Do you know what? It, even with this like document that you put together over the last two years, it's it's evolving and changing. Um, because your experiences change it, so it's kind of a, a, a breathing document that that, um, that is evolving all the time. But I, I would say, like the, the fundamental principles are to um, to try to develop a team that wants to play, and it's a lot of people say this, but exciting, offensive, attack-minded football um, to to be able to have control of the game, mainly with the ball, but also without the ball because and I think that's been become one of the biggest things that I've kind of evolved to is I've always been like yeah yeah we want to attack and we want to dominate the game and it's very good to say that but it is also player dependent and it is also dependent on the characteristics of the players that you've got and certainly when you come into a team you might have to adapt that philosophy a little bit to get you uh, to take the steps that you want to be able to take and be able to control the game without the ball from a defensive structure is really important. So I think I've evolved a little bit from that. But certainly, I think quite a lot about the characteristics of the players that you want to have in your team. Um, you know, brave players, pre players that are comfortable playing under pressure, that are not afraid to make mistakes. So to develop these kind of players within your philosophy, um, I, I think uh, important to understand the kind of players you, you want to develop um, because they ultimately are the ones that are going to deliver on the pitch for you. So I have, an, of course, a, an overall objective of how a perfect game would look. And then I think we have to work with uh, the players' characteristics to, to fit in with that model and then also have a plan for when the game isn't perfect, which is quite often, um, right. and how do we still find a way to win the game. So when you say characteristics, do you mean like psychological characteristics rather than physical? Yeah, I mean, of course, like I was asked this question not long ago, actually, about our, our like recruitment process and what sort of things do we look for in our recruitment process. And I was saying to, the, um, to them that I understand, especially in Ostersund, like if, if, if Guardiola in Man City or Klopp is spending 100 million, they're pretty clear with the exact characteristics and technical competencies, tactical competencies of that player because you're buying one of the world's best, if not the world's best. Whereas we are, of course, recruiting from a totally different pool. So we have an understanding that there are going to be many, many probably deficiencies in the players that we have to work with. Um, but so one of the biggest things for me in terms of characteristics for looking at players is, is the mindset, first of all, is the mindset of the player there with a, an, a view to learn, develop, improve, and has the right kind of um, mental capacity to be able to do that. Because I think that's really important uh, because you can have a player that, okay, we, we can have a player that's uh, six foot five, um, fantastic defender, but you know is struggling with the ball in the build-up play. 
well, we can work with the technical competencies, but if his mindset won't allow it because he doesn't want to do that, doesn't believe he can do that, or doesn't have the right capacity to learn and develop, then we're probably not going to take him any further than he is. So I, I think the mental characteristics in recruitment are massively important because if you get them right, you've got a team of players that you can adapt and mould and build into your way of playing. Do you know, uh, Julian Nagelsmann said that uh, management for him is, is 30% tactics and, and 70% social competence. And I guess that he means, in a way, man management there and in yeah. a way common sense as well. Do you agree with that? What do you think? Yeah, I would agree with that because I think you can, and I've over the years I've, I've spoke to lots of coaches, some coaches and some analysts that are absolutely unbelievable, like tactical minds. And... Some coaches are great tactical minds on the board, but struggle to then convey it and deliver that onto the pitch to the players. And some, um, some can have training sessions, but they won't. They don't have the communication skills or the social skills to get the buy-in from the players. And I think, you know, people. There's so many different styles, and I, I don't think there's a there isn't a right or wrong way of playing. Um, there's many different ways to, to try to win the game. And like people could be, people can talk about Guardiola or Klopp, or then they can talk about like, I don't know, uh, Tony Pulis or Big Sam. But you know what? What's amazing about, say, those guys, or if you watch a lot of the stuff with Neil Warnock, is like their ability to gain uh, buy in from the players, probably via their social competencies, is a massive management skill. And then tactics is a smaller part of it because if you don't get the first part right that you don't connect the players with the subject and you can't get them to to buy into it I think it's very hard to even scratch the surface on the quality of the tactics when Graham Potter was at Ostersunds um, a lot was made of the off the pitch stuff that he was doing so um, dance performances reading groups that kind of stuff yeah. which is all part of creating this buy-in is yeah. that something that you've continued with um, or is, is that part of his regime and you've got your own ways of doing it? Um, no, I have continued it, I have to say. Um, that is because it's in the contract of every player and coach that we have to take part in the uh, club's cultural activities. So, um, wow. so I, yeah, the, the first year we did a musical production. I, I sang on stage, danced. Um, <laughs> what was the production in? It was, a, it was like a musical comedy. Um, we did it together with uh, we did it together with a theatre professional theatre company, which is uh, called Gladder Hoodick. They've actually been out in New York, and they um, they they work together with a lot of uh, Down syndrome or um, yeah learning disability people, and they're absolutely unbelievable. They were unbelievable to work with, and we could, together with them produced this. It was some singing, some dancing, some comedy sketches. It was like a story of. Uh, Ostersons through the time right. played out as a musical so we did that and then this year we did did, did, did um, you love it uh, no um, <laughs> no do you Why know not? what I loved uh, no I loved working with the 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 Gladder Hoodick and the I loved working with the uh, the people that were doing it I kind of like the the process the, the process was really interesting the players to be honest I, I understand why Graham uh, and the club implemented a lot of these things because what they wanted to do was take players totally out of a comfort zone uh, and challenge them to do things they didn't think that they were capable of doing, which, like, as a human fundamental principle, is really, really good to do, yeah. you know, um, and it does bring people together. And so, like, we were going to singing classes and dance classes during the year, 
And it sometimes it can be hard because if you've lost on a Sunday and on Monday afternoon, you've got to go to a dance class. But actually, it ends up you don't want to do it. And then after you've done it, you think, actually, that was quite good. Um, even though you look absolutely ridiculous dancing and we look sound ridiculous singing. But I bet, I bet you didn't though. I mean, honestly, oh, I'm sure that I'm sure that some kind of maybe that's where you're self-conscious as opposed to being part of football. This is it. And I think that's what it is. Is like every player and coach has to expose their probably their fears and their biggest vulnerabilities yeah. of like doing something so uncommon to them in front of big audiences. You know, there's like 500 in a full theatre yeah. there. Um, but you do it together. Yeah, yeah. The whole club does it. And yeah. so we did the production. This year we did like, a, it was a, a range of comedy sketches and um, um, yeah, another theatre production, basically, a lot of singing and dancing. Um, and, and But afterwards, the feeling from the players is that of like, we've just won a game. Because you get, especially like the three days before, when the season finishes, then we work towards this culture project. And like the three, three or four days before where we're doing the final rehearsals, honestly this year we were looking at each other going oh this is going to be a disaster <laughs> this is going to be a disaster we can't do this we've not a clue what we're doing we're not standing in the right place you're going on stage at the wrong time we're going to look idiots and then it's like everybody kind of says right pull yourself together we've got to sort this out we can't look like fools in front of the whole town <laughs> and then like we we end up doing it and it and you know that the fans all come down they think it's great it's a great way to connect with the supporters and at the end of it it's kind of like wow, that was a great achievement that we managed to do that together. Yeah. And I think yeah. it binds the, the group. And I think, I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure something like that, you know, I'm, well, I, I'm pretty sure Graham doesn't do uh, Dance Swan late with the Brighton team. But <laughs> I think he probably has some of those principles of take players out of a comfort zone, show vulnerability, um, you know, make them, uh, make them overcome something they don't think they could do to improve them as a human being because I think when you start doing that you're going to get a better player so I think it's a really interesting concept and and of course uh, I've carried it on partly because um, it's in my contract and partly because I also think the club has gone from fourth division to Europa League and then the, the first question I asked when I came in is what things have really worked for you guys because they're the things I don't want to take away I want to make sure I embrace them right do you know what? I mean, listening to you talk about it, though, I, I love that idea. I can't think of anything short of maybe a dancing-related injury that is negative about doing that. And, you know, it makes me think the, the, the showing vulnerability aspect of it is, is obviously very important. But the fact that everyone does it together, I mean, I, I, I can imagine that that builds real camaraderie. And that presumably is, um, might give you a little bit of an advantage. Well, I think that's the hope, really. I mean, you look at if you look at the the league structure and where we are realistically with budget. You know, we're we're at the bottom end. Um, and and in the two seasons under Graham, they finished eighth and then fifth. In my first season, we finished sixth, and last year we finished twelfth. We dipped a bit, um, but overall, you know, we've had four seasons probably above where we should be budget wise, um, and. We have to ask ourselves, okay, we can't pay the same as some of the big clubs. We don't have the same facilities. We don't even have a, the same recruitment possibilities because, you know, Stockholm is much easier to recruit players into than in the north in, in Ostersund. So we have to find ways that we can be do things different or, or better than other teams with our resources. Um, and I think this is maybe one of those things. I'm going to change tact a little bit now and ask you, obviously, you, you were in Norway before you were in, in Sweden and you're, you're married, right, with kids. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Um, interestingly, this came up in a meeting that we were having yesterday, unrelated yeah. to, to you and this podcast, but somebody, one of, our, one of our colleagues mentioned the idea that we never talk about the partners of athletes or of uh, coaches or managers or whatever. Um, and it struck me that, you know, your partner moving with you to Norway and to Sweden, it's quite a big thing to ask someone to do on a personal level. I mean, was that, uh, was that difficult for you? Um, it, it wasn't at first, but I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because now my wife will listen to this podcast because <laughs> <laughs> I can tell her she's on it. Um, but do you know what? It's a, it is a really interesting one because people, often I come on podcasts and, and do talks and, and I talk about football and talk about everything around football. But actually, it's really, really hard to uh, – we started at the, at the very uh, uh, start of the, the podcast to talk about how you clear your mind or how you – uh, do those kind of things. And I think that it's really, really difficult to focus on your job if things in your background are not stable. So the fact that, you know, uh, my wife comes out and she takes care of the three kids and and uh, does a hell of a lot of work and, and is sacrificed quite a lot um, means that I can have that stability when I go into work every day, which is massively important. I don't think you'd be able to do it without that. Um, but when when we first moved to Norway, we didn't have any kids. I was twenty nine, um, and we I took the assistant manager's job at Sarpsborg, and uh, we, for us with no kids, it was a perfect opportunity to go and try and do something different. So we were quite excited by that. We had my first daughter was born in Sarpsborg um, just after the first year of being there, and then I got a job offer uh, on the the southwest coast, uh, a Viking in Stavanger which is obviously a really big club and it was a, a big move at the time. So then we moved down there. My second daughter was born down there. I think that first move was quite a challenge because she was pregnant and then we had a, there's only 15 months between the, the, the girls. So it was, I think she was home. It rained a lot in Stavanger that winter. So she was stuck in, a, in the house. I was away in like Marbella on a training camp, which never goes down <laughs> too well when, when your wife's stuck at home with, screaming, with a screaming kid and pregnant. Uh, in the rain but we kind of found our way through it and there was some really difficult parts especially when the kids were so young and even now I think this move we've had a lot of uh, challenges the girls have gone from like speaking Norwegian going back to England for a bit then now learning Swedish so they've had some um, challenges themselves which I think long term can be really healthy and good for them um, but in the moment, you know, when they're upset at leaving or going somewhere else or leaving their friends is quite a challenge. And I think living in the north of Sweden, like for my for my wife, obviously a long way away from family, from friends, uh, there are some challenging periods with that. But obviously, you know, we it's been a there's been a lot of positives to the journey, but there are also those side of things which can be a, a challenge away from the pitch as well. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. I, I'm also uh, glad I asked. I think I'll make it a staple of a, of these sorts yeah, of interviews because yeah. it's um it's a very interesting facet to, to people's lives, and it obviously has a huge impact on people's work, as as you mentioned too. Um, I would like to cycle back around to the beginning. Now I've got one more thing to ask you. Uh, we spoke to Ian Everett, you know, the manager of, of yep. Barrow AFC, a couple of weeks ago, who was a fascinating uh, guy to talk to. Um, he told us that he's read The Secret and he has a vision board at home. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what do you read? And do you engage in any, you know, mental psychological exercises like that, positive thinking or anything as part of your, your job? Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I read plenty of different things. And, and 
like I, I find it hard to read um, fiction, to be honest. I tend to read things that are related to, to the work because I'm so interested in it and I'm so interested. Like I'm learning all the time about you know leadership processes, trying to win football games and trying to get better. So I think I have such a vested interest in it. I'm, I, most of the books that I read are are around those kind of things. I think the best the best book I've read by a long way recently was um, Legacy, the one with the New Zealand All Blacks. Right, and the yeah. Cultural aspects to that. Um, but a lot of the, the mental psychology books, Chimp Paradox and ones like that, I've found really, really interesting into what, motivates or what can uh, trigger players or people to do certain things so I, I certainly I, I read a lot around the subject that I'm working in um, do you ever ask the players to read anything particular yeah yeah I've given them books actually I've give them uh, I've give players books like the I, I remember I, the, I had a player that definitely would have benefited from reading the chimp paradox book I don't know if you've read that one no um, it's a book by dr. Steve Peters it's a about I think it like it's kind of putting the brain and the mental processes into more layman's terms and they're, they're like the chimp is what's in your brain and right. there's different ways to control the chimp and there's different like actions that it takes and um, it's a really, really fascinating book. I know a lot of sportsmen have used it. I think Ronnie O'Sullivan was massive on it and um, and I, I, I've, I had that book and I saw a player and I could see that he was like not controlling so many of his emotions or way of thinking. So I gave him the book. I was like, listen, you need to read this and come back to me. But he said he got to like chapter four and it was like reading his own autobiography. And he was like, I think I need to stop now. But um, yeah, I've given, and, and also to the staff, you know, we, we share books between us actually. Uh, David Priest, my, my goalie coach, he, he loves a, he loves a book, anything to do with football, and like we, we switch the books that we're reading quite a lot. So yeah, definitely I encourage the player. You know, it really annoys me sometimes when I, I talk to the players and I say like, oh, what did you do yesterday when he got back? And they might say, oh, yeah, well, as soon as we got back, we logged on to Call of Duty. Well, how long were you on that for? <laughs> six hours. And I'd be like, lads, listen, six hours on Call of Duty, right? Read a book, uh, learn how to play golf or like d d educate yourself. Because I remember Brian Dean said to me in his 20-year playing career, he, he could have done three degrees. And he wished he'd have done three degrees if he had his time again. And I think trying to encourage players to do different stuff like that, read books, is is really important. Yeah, that's really interesting. Hey, well, listen, Ian, thanks, um, thanks a million for your for your time today. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks a lot, guys. And listen, when you are a Premier League manager in the future, do you promise to come back and do a podcast again? Yes, I will do. Uh, and when I'm a Premier League manager, I can uh, then I'll sing you one of the songs from the musical as well. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a double down on that promise. That's yeah. lovely. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, listen, yeah, thanks thanks a lot, Ian. And uh, we will be back next week with, uh, with something else. Cheers. Goodbye. <laughs>